0: Folks, if you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently, right now I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SAIL30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SAIL30. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire, and this is The Norman Invasion, Part 16, The Arrival of Hugh de Lacey. This show sees the arrival of the man who is probably the most important figure in our story after Strongbow. While Hugh de Lacey has been briefly mentioned in previous episodes, this fascinating figure, along with his family, will dominate our story for decades to come so he needs a proper introduction. And this show is entirely devoted to Hugh de Lacey. By 1177, Dublin was recovering from the turmoil of the Norman invasion that had seen it stormed in 1170, besieged in 1171 and then threatened with a further siege in 1174. Nestled on a ridge of high land, running along the south bank of the River Liffey, it was now the largest town in Ireland and the Norman capital. King Henry II's royal officials worked within its walls while it still attracted merchants from across Europe who sold their wares at Dublin's fairs. Each week new ships made their way up the River Liffey mooring along the town's wharfs and from there the crews made their way through the thronged, bustling streets. For Dubliners, this increased traffic through their town must have had an impact. The appearance of sails on the horizon and oars rising and falling in unison, breaking the waves, was no longer a source of interest or excitement but a regular feature of life. No doubt the increasing numbers of travellers saw the novelty of new faces wear off as they blended into a faceless multitude in the town's streets. However, In late 1177, when those aboard the latest fleet arriving from England disembarked, there was one of their number who stood out from the thousands who arrived in Dublin each year. As he walked through Dublin's streets, few would forget this face. His name was Hugh de Lacey, the new representative of King Henry II. While Hugh hadn't been in Ireland for nearly four years, anyone who had encountered him previously would have recognised him immediately. Gerald of Wales, the chronicler who met de Lacey, recalled his appearance. He was dark, with dark, sullen eyes. His face was grossly disfigured down the right side as far as his chin by a burn, the result of an accident. Hugh de Lacey was reminiscent of Sandor Clegane, the hound in Game of Thrones. However, unlike the fictional character, de Lacey was no man's dog. Indeed, he would become one of Ireland's most important figures in the 12th century and it's worth taking time to explain his background. He had come to Ireland for the first time in 1171 in the entourage of Henry II. By then he was already a powerful man but he had risen to great heights by a somewhat unusual path. The de Lacy family owned large estates in England and Wales but Hugh as a second son should never have inherited them save a bizarre set of coincidences which changed his life. In the late 1150s his ageing father, Gilbert de Lacey, had joined the Knights Templar and departed for the Crusader States in the Middle East, handing over the family lands to Hugh's elder brother, Robert. However, Robert himself had died within three years without an heir and Hugh then became the Lord of Webley. In Ireland in 1172, His stature and standing had grown substantially. If you can recall back, Henry II had arrived in 1171, worried about the rising power of Strongbow, who he feared might be thinking of establishing a rival kingdom in Ireland. To provide a counterbalance to Strongbow, he therefore granted Hugh what was the southern O'Neill kingdom of Mead, making him lord of the region. This gave Hugh a phenomenal tract of land, somewhere in the region of 800,000 acres, stretching from Dublin to the border of Ulster and from the Irish Sea to the River Shannon. Now, theoretically at least, Hugh was as powerful as Strongbow. However, this grant was speculative, meaning the land had not yet been conquered. That said... Meade was an imploding kingdom, weakened and being fought over by the surrounding Gaelic kings. Late 1172 saw Hugh begin to make good on his grant by killing the Gaelic king, Tiernan o'Rourke, his main rival in Mead. Slowly but surely, he began to lay the foundation for a Norman lordship of the region, building a castle at Trim. However, in late 1173, all his plans in Ireland were put on hold when civil war broke out in England. Hugh with many other Normans in Ireland including Strongbow and Robert FitzStephen, rallied to King Henry II. Little did he know when he left Ireland he would not return for four years. The fighting took Hugh to Normandy and then he spent the following three years in England and Wales on the family estates there. When word arrived of Strongbow's death in 1176, Hugh can only have seen the opportunity this presented. He was unquestionably now the most important noble in Ireland, given Strongbow's heir was a child and the family lands were in the hands of royal guardians. Nevertheless, this was balanced with depressing news from his lordship in Mead. It had been raided in 1174 by the Gaelic King of Connacht, Rory O'Connor and while further settlement had gone ahead, it had been attacked by the O'Neills sweeping in from Ulster in 1175. It was clear de Lacey would and needed to come back to Ireland. The risks of not coming were too great, while the potential power he could gain was boundless. Nevertheless, he did not return immediately. Instead, he remained in England for another year. And attended Henry II's Council of Oxford about Ireland in eleven seventy seven. There, as we saw in the last two shows, Robert Fitzstephen, Milo de Cogan, and Philip de Brioge received lands in Munster. Hugh was also showered with prestige and power. Along with being the Lord of Meath, he was now chosen to be Henry's main representative in Ireland. One third of Strongbow's lordship was also placed under his guardianship until Strongbow's young son, Gilbert, came of age. Henry was not finished aggrandizing him though as Hugh was also granted rule over the city of Dublin. These phenomenal powers made Hugh a potential threat to Henry and to guarantee his loyalty the king made him hand over his valuable castle and lands at Ludlow in Wales. Effectively this was Henry's bargaining chip and hostage as such if he were to step out of line in Ireland. Given he possessed massive power when he arrived in Ireland, de Lacy's presence loomed large over the lives of people for years to come. His appearance was not the only reason they would remember him. However, having staked so much in coming to Ireland, de Lacy may not have been happy with what he found in that summer of 1177. Making good on his lands in Ireland would not be as easy as they might have seemed. Hugh de Lacey's arrival in Ireland heralded a new phase of the Norman invasion. Rather than dramatically expand the Norman conquests, he instead began a programme of building and reorganising, in Mead in particular, which saw the Normans plant deep roots and transform Ireland. However, this was no easy task. The Norman invasion had seen widespread war and upheaval across Ireland. By 1177 they had carved out a large swathe of territory between Cork and Antrim with its core in Leinster and to a lesser extent Mead which was increasingly secure. The biggest Gaelic opposition they faced was the O'Connors of Connacht but they were too busy squabbling amongst themselves to pose any major resistance. However much of Leinster and indeed Mead was ruinous. War had taken its toll. Fields were burned, many of the Gaelic inhabitants had fled and the Gaelic society which had existed for centuries had been torn asunder. While Norman colonists were flooding into Ireland they were not coming in big enough numbers to replace the Gaelic Irish who had fled and rebuilding and replanting of crops was not happening. Indeed when Hugh arrived in 1177 there was not even enough food to feed the Normans. The shortages were so severe that grain from Shropshire in England had to be imported. This chronic food supply problem was a constant issue through the coming months, one that had to be resolved if the Normans were going to carry out the changes they desired. However 1178 offered De Lacey no respite and the weather that year was highly unusual. A good harvest was needed but the summer was extremely dry. The Gaelic annals reported the Galway River dried up. Indeed one chronicler recalled objects from what they called the remotest times were uncovered on the riverbed. Even the Shannon, Ireland's biggest river, appears to have substantially dropped in depth. As one source revealed an island came on the Shannon and no one knew whence it came. For the coming harvest this was disastrous as crops were deprived of water crucial to growth. If this wasn't bad enough, later 1178 also saw dramatic storms which tore down oak trees and a harsh frost which froze lakes solid. Unsurprisingly, the import of grain from England nearly doubled with 500 bushels being imported in 1178 and 1179. This wasn't exactly what the Normans had planned when they had conquered Ireland. It was supposed to be a source of wealth, not somewhere they needed to be sending food to. However... Hugh himself was well aware of what needed to be done. Indeed, it was almost in his DNA. His family owned lands in what were known as the Welsh Marches. These were frontier regions where the Normans were battling against Welsh princes in a not too dissimilar situation to Ireland. Through these experiences, Hugh had a clear plan about how to take, hold and develop Mead. Simply put, the lands that had been burned by war and abandoned by the Gaelic Irish Needed to be put under the plough again, and from there a society could be rebuilt. However, not like the one that had existed prior to the invasion, this new society would be cast in the image of the Norman lands they had come from in England and Wales. To complete this, massive amounts of labour would be needed, and it was evident that there simply wasn't enough people coming from across the Irish Sea. Hugh knew he needed to entice the Gaelic Irish back. How exactly he achieved it is uncertain but Gerald of Wales tells us that he went to great trouble to conciliate those who had been conquered and he does appear to have successfully brought the Gaelic Irish back to till the land while he restocked pastures. While some sources paint a picture of de Lacey doing this through peaceful negotiation I'm pretty dubious about this. I suspect there was a lot of stick and very little carrot used in terms of incentive because by 1179 complaints reached Henry II in England from Gaelic-Irish subjects that they were being mistreated. I guess it's also possible he lured them back under false pretenses. One way or another it appears Hugh de Lacey had very little qualms about how he achieved his rebuilding programme as he was also approaching tenants and peasants from the deceased Strongbow's lordship of Leinster. One way or another, though, he was successful. The work programme he embarked on was massive. Castles were built, lands were re-sown. However, in this process he also swept away the last vestiges of Gaelic mead, that kingdom that had provided so many of Ireland's high kings. The 800,000 acres of the lordship was vast far too expansive to be ruled by his family alone. Therefore he had made some of his supporters sub-tenants and the old kingdom was carved up between them. For example the Feppo family were granted lands in the region of Screen which they ruled from a castle they constructed, while the Tyrrell family were given lands close to Dublin at Castle Knock. Hugh himself kept an extensive domain at were, for his own family while he built the administrative centre of the entire lordship around the castle and town at Trim. The castle at Trim had been built and then rebuilt after being attacked by Rory O'Connor but by the late 1170s it was already an impressive earth and timber work fortification while the town around it was becoming a key part of de Lacey's lordship. While Trim Castle would in time become the biggest castle in Ireland other structures were erected and expanded at Kells and Duleek. In this new society emerging, the Gaelic Irish who had returned were completely second-class citizens, or subjects rather. They had no place under Norman law to speak of. As the legal framework for the colony took hold, they were deprived of any right to take a case. Indeed, if a Gaelic person was murdered by a Norman, their murder did not face any consequences. In the years after 1177, De Lacey ushered in what was a period of stability, for the Normans at least, in the east of the country after nearly a decade of upheaval which had begun with the conquest. He also put an end to the decades-long struggle for Meath which had been one of the root causes of why Dermot Bachmurra had originally fled Ireland and sought Strongbow's help way back in 1166. This was done by obliterating the kingdom and forging the new Norman lordship of Meath on its ruins. The only major potential problem Hugh de Lacey faced was Rory O'Connor, the Gaelic King of Connacht. If Rory swept across the Shannon in a raid, as he had done on countless occasions before this, he could do untold damage. While Hugh could be confident that once he marshalled his forces he would be able to drive Rory back, the raid in itself could cause massive, massive damage. He needed some lasting resolution. And negotiations began with Rory to try and stabilise relations with Connacht. This ended in a marriage alliance in 1180, one that had massive consequences for Hugh de Lacy. That year, Hugh married Rose O'Connor, the daughter of Rory O'Connor, in an effort to bind the two men to peace. While such alliances were common, in order to marry, Hugh de Lacy needed to get his king Henry II's permission first. Something he had failed to do. Now in the medieval period kings controlled their nobles' right to marry for the very reason that marriages could make individuals, like Hugh, very powerful. In 1180 Hugh de Lacey had gone and ignored this law and married Rose O'Connor and formed an alliance with Gaelic Ireland's most powerful king. Henry II, a suspicious man at the best of times, was outraged and understandably so in the previous decade his own family had risen up against him along with many of his nobles. Now he could see Hugh de Lacey growing ever more powerful in Ireland and marrying the daughter of a man who claimed to be King of Ireland. This was a step too far. De Lacey had severely misjudged this situation. He should have been able to predict the reaction. Unsurprisingly in 1181 Henry decided he needed to recall de Lacey and make him answer for what he had done. He sent not one but two men, John de Lacy and another the memorably named Richard of the Peak to replace him as the king's representative in Ireland. It was clear Henry did not want another individual gaining the power de Lacy had accrued. When these two men arrived in Dublin they had little idea what to expect. Would de Lacy resist? Given everything he had achieved would he simply pass over his power to John de Lacy and Richard of the Peak? If he didn't, he would risk war. Tune in next time to find out. Until next time, slon.